the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And I think that we're just going to dive into this case because it's pretty crazy. Um, We are covering a terrifying case that you guys have probably never heard of. And it's actually pretty insane because when you try to Google this, absolutely nothing comes up. There's like a few articles that you can't get on Google. You can't get those on Google? No. Oh, that's you need a special newspapers.com oh. account, which I have. Oh. <laughs> no, nothing on Google. So absolutely nothing on Google, uh-huh. which is absolutely insane. So we're taking you to New York City and the 1980s and the neighborhood surrounding Bellevue Hospital, which is on the east side of Manhattan. Yeah. And if you know the name Bellevue, uh, it's become synonymous with a psychiatric ward. And the name of, oh, we're sending him to Bellevue. Everybody knows we're sending you to the nut house. And that's because it had a very notorious psychiatric ward. It first opened, it's what they called the Pavilion for the Insane in the 1800s, which Sounds really. Like a fun shopping center. It does, yeah. Uh, it was not a pretty picture. You know, you, you, they had shock therapy, they had all these other controversial treatments. There was even one experiment at Bellevue in the mid 40s where almost 100 children that were diagnosed with schizophrenia were given shock treatments for six days a week. On top of this, New York and what New York was like in mm-hmm. in 1980. And so I remember, you know, growing up on Long Island, going into New York was like going into battle. It was like going into a war zone. In 1975, New York City was out of money. And they asked for federal assistance, and Ford said no, which was that famous cover that you see uh, Ford, the city, drop dead from the Daily News. So here's what happened. New York City's all out of money. The NYPD lets go 50,000 employees in 1975. Over the next five years, the force shrinks by a third. So think about that. 33% of the cops are gone. When you see a movie like The Warriors, it was kind of like that. Not to mention that the transit authority's budget were cut, so graffiti was rampant. It was on every train. Crime went up 40% from 1975 to 1980. And when you look at the movies that were were like that time, it was a scary thing to go into the city. It really was. And granted, Bellevue was in one of the nicer neighborhoods, but it's still a little crazy. It's not like New York is now. New York is, particularly in Manhattan, is a very, very safe place. It wasn't like that back then. So everything started as it usually does with a 911 call. So we're going to set the scene that occurred at the historic Bellevue Hospital as its backdrop on November 11th, 1980. So the NYPD received a 911 call that erroneously reported that a child had been struck by a car on 26th and 1st Avenue. And while the police emergency service were rushing to the scene and trying to figure out what was going on, a second call came in reporting that another man had been struck by a car right near the first accident. So when police arrived to the scene, they discovered that they weren't dealing with a car accident at all. They are dealing with a handful of grisly violent attacks committed by a suspect who would instill fear all across across Manhattan and would end up igniting one of the largest manhunts in New York City history. That's right. And this crime wouldn't just set off one of the largest manhunts that New York City had ever seen, but this crime spree would also be one of the first crimes of its kind, setting off a catalyst that would eventually reveal similar incidents for decades. And these incidents wouldn't just continue. They would escalate, become more prevalent, and really come to um, a head in 2016, where we saw the most of these incidents, at least in New York City, in our nation's history, which is fascinating. Here on The First Degree, obviously, we will cover crimes that span the eras. If we can find a first degree connection to a crime through someone, but we will always find a contemporary tie-in because if you can't take something away from a show like ours, then there is no point. We will be revealing information about the current state of these kinds of crimes and how that affects you, the listener. So let's get back to November 11th, 1980. 
First victim, 8.45 p.m. Dan Connolly has left his Bellevue Hospital after visiting a sick friend, and he was walking down First Avenue to get home. Then, without warning, he was struck in the face with something hard and heavy. He was stunned, disoriented, and that's when the stabbing started. He fell to the ground. Second victim, 8.50. One block south of the first attack, a man named Rabin Tuthill, who is an x-ray tech at Bellevue Hospital, was reporting back to work at the hospital after having dinner. He crossed paths with a man on the sidewalk and suddenly felt a hard, solid punch to his chest. Realizing that he was being attacked, he started running up to First Ave. He could hear the assailant trailing behind him in the dark. Ray was chased about a half a block before the assailant retreated. He then looked down at his torso and realized that blood was leaking from his chest. The man hadn't punched him at all. Instead, he plunged a knife deep into his ribcage. Ray turned around and saw his attacker head south towards a woman waiting at a bus stop. He was in shock and lightheaded as he watched his attacker walk closer and closer to the woman he'd set his sights on. Third victim, 8.56 p.m. Raymond watched in horror as the man struck the woman on the shoulders without making a sound. He walked away calmly. She slumped over on the ground before getting up suddenly, struggling to walk towards the vehicular entrance at Bellevue Hospital. Then she collapsed. Her name was Helen Zagan. She was only five blocks from home when she was attacked. So what I've just read aloud to you is a harrowing description of victims one through three of the Bellevue slasher attacks. And I read the accounts of those three attacks robotically like that to prove point. This attacker was moving from one victim to the next methodically, silently, without emotion. It's horrifying. It's more terrifying than an emotional attack, in my opinion. And there were five victims that night. And I just told you about one through three. And in a very special first-degree perspective situation, we have victim number four here on our show today. So Dr. Robert Wolf is gracious enough to speak with us from his boat in Menorca, Spain, where he lives. So I had to get up at like 5 a.m. to call him and conduct this interview. And he was drinking a martini on his boat, recounting this experience. And he told me he was lifting up his shirt and looking at his scars as he was talking to me. So Dr. Wolf, when you hear this, I love you. His account is really incredible, as is his story. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear it because this one is a near and dear first-degree perspective. He was leaving NY you hospital on this night after staying late with a graduate student. He was a professor there. It was nine o'clock and one block from where Helen lay dying on the pavement when Dr. Wolf was heading to his car. And here's his account of events. You know, I'm, I'm going to my car. I want to get home. I'm behind schedule. It's the day before my birthday, which, I, you know, anyway, I mean, that wasn't in my consciousness, really. But, um, I'm on 25th Street, just beginning to go up at the beginning of the block, and the parking lot's across the street, and as I'm walking, some guy jumps out between two cars, and I feel this thud in my side, but he punched me. I said, you SOB, you don't do that to me. And I chased him. He started running, and I chased him towards the corner of 2nd Avenue and 25th Street, and I'm ready to tackle him. As I'm ready to tackle him, I see he's got this 12-inch hunting knife in his hand. And I look down, and I see blood pouring out of my gut. So the only thing I could think of was to turn around and get into the emergency room at Bellevue. There was construction going on, and I went in the back way. And I'm running through. I'm bleeding. I'm hardly able to breathe, and I'm running through this construction site, jumping over stuff. And on the street of First Avenue, I did jump over a body, which happened to be a victim. He slit her neck, and she died right there on the street. Went right through the doors of the emergency room, and they're in there. They're working on people, and they look at me like I'm crazy. And they said, what happened? I said, I've been stabbed. And they said, uh-oh, another one. Because this guy was on a psychotic rampage. What? I didn't know that this guy had stabbed other people or anything like that. So what do you guys think about that? <laughs> I mean, I have one question about 
Well, neither of you guys are going to know the answer to this. It's about being stabbed. Because a lot of people, when they're stabbed, they think they're just being punched. So I wonder how long it takes these people to register that they've been stabbed and they're like gushing out blood. Because it's like your adrenaline's hitting for so long. Mm -hmm. And he was running after the killer. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, I can't imagine what the feeling would be. No, I mean, it's probably very visual. Like if you see a blade go into you, you know you're stabbed. The pain's going to feel much different than, you know, your body processes things in weird ways. Right. I don't know. You know, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, he realized when he saw blood. Right. Now, as far as the victims go, the first victim, did he survive? Yes. Everybody survived except for the one third. Yeah. So he really was kind of ramping up in a sense. I bet that the thrust that he had on the first victim were less powerful than the second, than the third, than the fourth, Mm -hmm. because he was really getting a hang of it once he started going Mm -hmm. and going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first victim, you know, much in the same way that you, you often see this with the suicides, you know, the first cuts you see a lot of the practice cuts first and mm-hmm. they finally get up the nerve to do it. But that's what I have a feeling that this guy was doing is that he was just continually ramping up. It was such a small amount of time going from 845 to 850 to 856 to 9 p.m. It's 15 minutes and he that's has just stabbed so four people. And wasn't the way he'd stab them and then he'd just walk away like nothing happened, mm-hmm. right? Really and he cr- would just blend right into the background. So chilling. Was- no reaction. He wouldn't say anything. He would just do it and walk away calmly. That's so eerie. Right. So then he had one more victim, 64-year-old Charles Cambridge, who was a retired government engineer, and he was stabbed six times in the back, abdomen, and chest as he was getting out of his car in front of his home. So then the last victim gets six stabs. So he was stabbed the most. So Billy's theory here is... is That's correct. Damn it. Way to go, Billy. (laughs) Shocker. So all the carnage, everything had happened only 25 minutes. And through the attacks, he doesn't utter a word at all. He's not some sort of, you know, screaming, raving lunatic, which New York certainly had a lot of back then and Mm -hmm. still has right now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he just walked away like it was nothing was nothing was happening. Just walked away. And then he found another another uh, victim, attacked them, then just would walk away again. And I'm sure that's so hard for the victims as well because it's like you're dealing with this crazy situation and you're just probably looking for any sign of the person. And if, you know, the attacker stabs you and then just walks away like he's a normal person, it must be really hard to try to get like any sort of an identification of him. Yeah, it's challenging. And Dr. Wolf gets into what he remembers about the suspect in a little while. So we'll have him weigh in. But, you know, obviously his experience didn't stop with the stabbing. So he went into the ER at the historic Bellevue and he walks us through some of his experiences there, too. So I'm in the emergency room. I'm on the table. I got my chest filled up with blood. You know, they have a trauma team. The low man on the totem pole is usually a senior medical student. Said you got to get a chest tube into him, and he's diddling around. And she sees this, and she says, get out of here. Move away. And she takes her finger, she goes through my lips, and she puts this tube in me, and then you hear all this blood going right onto the floor. And she turns to him, and she said, that's the way you put a f***ing chest tube in, just like that. So they got me right on the table, and I asked her, I said, look, am I going to make it? I said, I have a wife and four kids at the time. And she said, even though you're from the dental center, we're going to save you, which was the best comic relief I could have heard, you know? Um... If someone can say that at, under these circumstances, I felt it made me feel better. I mean, when I woke up the next morning, and I, I said, "Holy jeez, they got me wired for sound here! I got tubes coming out of every place in the world." I said, "Oh my, what the hell? Do I have anything left inside?" You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know, um, but. Um, but then after the anesthesia war, I mean, the pain, I got to tell you, in the beginning, it was just horrific. There was another victim there in the, in the same room that I was in. He was a nice guy. He was an x-ray technician. But yeah. he was right next to me. The only thing that I didn't like was the nursing staff. They were all chummy with him. They'd bring ice cream into the room. 
they didn't give me any. <laughs> I mean, I'd be pissed too. <laughs> You know what? It doesn't matter what situation you're in. You always want some f***ing ice cream. <laughs> you really do. I mean, this is... Let's talk about the comic relief from the doctor. That's amazing. I know. You need that. Your life is in danger. It's like all you want is to laugh a little bit. He's in so much pain. Well, I have to tell you, he took note, too, out of this little dental humor because there was a New York Times article where they quoted Dr. Wolf and they're like, how did this happen? You know, say something. He goes, the guy did a real root canal job on me. <laughs> I'm like, there's a little dental humor here. He really I could, loves- I could imagine the jokes that he was saying in the in When the he was like all it, hopped it, up on drugs. Exactly. That must have been some performance. Oh, my God. It was probably the worst dad jokes you could ever hear. Oh, my God. So terrifying. The chest tube thing. Oh, terrifying. Oh, very graphic description. Can we send him ice cream, though? Yes. Mm. We We needed some Menorca, Spain. Yes, that'll get there. Not melted. (laughs) (laughs) We'll send him a Dippin' Dots gift certificate. Hell yeah. I love Dippin' Dots. So all these victims were all separate people going about their separate lives, but they're all brought together by that one deranged individual. So the third victim was 53 year old Helen Zaglin. She was stabbed in the throat and rushed to Bellevue Hospital, which was only a couple feet away from her, but she was pronounced dead immediately. She was an opera buff and worked at the NYU School of Dentistry Library for seven years prior to her murder. Her sister spoke to the press and described her as charitable, often volunteering her time to the blind and other charities. And the senseless loss of Helen's life was obviously extremely devastating to her family. So the slasher's other four victims were all in critical condition right now, and the doctors were telling the media that the next 72 hours would be crucial. So the man disappeared into the night, and police immediately broadcast a citywide alarm. Police officers surrounding the neighborhoods began a search for him, and on the street, in the subways, and in nearby hospitals. And what they were looking for was an African-American man, muscular, around 30 years old, 6'2", 200 to 220 pounds, with a beard. He tried to kill the five of the victims with a long hunting knife, and he also was carrying a cherrywood cane, which is very interesting. Like, and he hit a couple of them in the face with it. Like a walking cane? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the media came up with a number of names, as they do, for the anonymous assailant, including the silent maniac, the mad slasher, and most notably, the Bellevue slasher, which I think is probably the best name out of those. And everyone in Manhattan was fearful that more slashings would continue across the city. So the city was essentially on lockdown and I cannot imagine how terrifying that would be. Just knowing he's out there and no clue where he went and nobody knows who he is. Like, it's horrific. Yeah, yeah. and the last time the city was gripped with that much fear was it's Son of Sam. Son of Sam yeah. But during Son of Sam, you knew he only attacked at night. You knew he attacked specific people that were doing specific things. And uh, this guy was just this going. This guy was just going for it. Yeah. And anybody that crossed his path, there was no rhyme or reason to it. Right. So what happens to these victims? Victim number one, Danny Connolly of Queens. He had to have his jaw wired shut as he was recovering from his injuries. But he turned out okay. Victims number two and four, Raymond Tudhill and Dr. Robert Wolf, who we just heard from, they shared that room at Bellevue as they recovered. Wolf had been stabbed in the liver and torso, and uh, he said that funny line, somewhat funny line about doing a, the assailant did a hell of a root canal job on him. Yeah. You know, both were still in serious condition after their life-saving surgeries. And again, this was a great trauma center, too. So mm-hmm. if you're going to get attacked like this, this is one of the best places uh, to be attacked, which yeah. is right here. And then the fifth victim, who was Charles Cambridge, who was 64 years old, he was also in serious condition after four and a half hours of surgery. Of course, when Dr. Wolf wakes up, people are questioning him about this assailant, trying to get them to help aid in creating a sketch. But, you know, let's see what he remembers. And he also has an odd connection to the victim who was killed in this case also. So we're going to hear from him now. little bit about just like his demeanor, his temperament. I know you went over that a little bit on our last call, but it was it was cutting in and out. Um, did he seem crazy and spastic or psychotic? I didn't even think about it, Alexis. I really didn't. I mean, I this guy. I didn't know what I didn't know what his 
modus operandi was. I just, you know, I I didn't know. I mean, I, I just know that this guy, at this point, I knew he stabbed me. And, I, you know, I, I didn't think about it. I just thought about what I had to do to save myself. Um, what did you learn about the victim uh, that died? Anything? Well, I, the only thing I had heard, it was in the paper, uh, it corroborated, that she had something to do with the dental center library. I don't know. Um, other than that, no, it, I didn't know. In fact, I learned about her from what the newspaper article says. I may have known, I, I'm not sure, but it may have been somebody that I had seen in the library of the dental school if I went down there. Yeah, I probably, I'm sure I did see her. I kind of, as I'm t speaking to you, I'm kind of closing my eyes and picturing, but I don't know if it's this, if I'm picturing the right person. A lot of the surviving victims have the same thing. They barely remember. Right. Uh, and I think it's when you're in this fight or flight sort of mode that your brain kind of focuses your energy on survival and mm -hmm. not studying the source of the threats, maybe? Right. Like, what do you guys think? Well, you're probably just completely discombobulated as well. And it's probably hard to focus on anything. Yeah, other than, you know, blood is dripping out of my side. I need to get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first thing he thought, I mean, he didn't even realize he was stabbed, too. So, you know, the first thing he's thinking, is somebody just bumped into me and hit me, mm -hmm. which is something that happens in New York. And he was just, <laughs> you often. know, like what he was saying was, hey, don't do that to me. And then he starts chasing the guy and then realizes I'm in I'm in deep trouble. Yeah, I need to run the other way. And it's crazy, too, that uh, the victim who was murdered, Helen, was, you know, so he taught at the dental school mm -hmm. um, as a professor, and she was working as a librarian for seven years. So they had crossed paths a number of times, and it was just like a cosmic shuffling of the deck that brought them together in this experience. Right. It's so crazy. Well, also, I mean, obviously, all these people were walking on they're, the same street right around the for same. the most part. Yeah. You know, they're Cosmic right shuffling of the deck, if you ask me. Cosmic shuffling of the deck. <laughs> okay. they were all... I'm pretty sure they all probably worked right around there. <laughs> It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. doesn't end with his hospital stay. You know, these are the kind of things that stick with you for years and years to come. So he walked us through at least, you know, the first thing was just the pain that followed this experience. Right. And I'll tell you, I mean, the post-surgical pain was horrific. I mean, they cut my whole chest open. They spread my rib cage open, cracked my ribs going into my sternum. Uh, plus all the surgery. And, uh, I mean, it was so bad when I said I need something, and they gave me a shot of uh, morphine and Vistarol, and, uh, oh, I said, this is wonderful. I feel so much better. Now this is how you get hooked. And that's when he started making all those jokes. <laughs> High as shit off of morphine. You deserve that after a stabbing attack. Yeah. Absolutely. Poor guy. This post-surgical pain he talks about, he obviously needed a lot of surgery. He needed blood transfusions. And that leads us to the next aftermath implication that Dr. Wolf was subjected to. Um, I'm here to tell the tale. <laughs> you know, I was obviously grateful I was alive. So here I am, I get, I get transfusions. It was just at that time, out in 
San Francisco, they just started discovering, it wasn't called AIDS. It was called it was something else. Grid. And then they talked about how the blood supply is not screened for this virus. And I'm saying, holy crap. Here I am. I survived this whole ordeal. And now I'm going to die from AIDS. Probably the most interesting and the most wild card aftermath implication is obviously psychological. Yeah. Because you never know how you're going to recover, respond. Even like a tough guy like that. You know, it probably hits somebody like that even worse because he probably comes out of the situation. He's like, holy shit, this is crazy. I got stabbed. I'm just going to go back to normal life and Mm -hmm. doesn't realize PTSD or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And he takes us through some of that experience, too. What about the, the psychological implications in the months and weeks that followed your recovery? I didn't know about post-traumatic stress syndrome. I didn't know how that was going to affect me. I mean, I guess there was a subconscious paranoia. I, I, I don't know. But um, all I know is uh, walking on the street, I saw a person that looked a little bit strange. My heart would race. I'd break out to a sweat. You know, this happened on, on a pretty frequent basis in the beginning. What I wanted to do was get a carry permit for a pistol. And I went to my local precinct, and they said, well, why do you want a pistol? A carry permit. I told them, they said, no, you don't want a permit. You're going to get yourself in trouble. And I understood what he was saying, and I just let it be. But I used to sleep with a 12-inch hunting knife under my mattress. I just said I'm never going to let this happen to me again, unless, and if it does, it's, someone's going down with me because this was I, I was just really traumatized because no one was caught. They didn't have a they didn't have anybody, and the guy's still on the loose and could be dangerous. Yeah, it was uh, it was tough times. I got to tell you, it was tough times. I survived. And then my wife died. As I said, it was real tough time. Yeah, no, that's terrifying. The fact that they never brought anybody in. I mean, it's traumatizing enough to go through a situation like that. But then to know that your assailant is on the loose and can be doing this to whoever else, or they know who you are. I mean, my mind would go a million different places. So they put 50 detectives on this. So like Billy was talking about, it was the largest manhunt in Manhattan since the son of Sam. The victims did not get that great of a look at the guy. So police were scrambling to find witnesses because there's a lot of witnesses around in New York. There's a lot of people walking around that might have some bits of information. So one of the uh, witnesses, they found a Bellevue nurse who reported seeing a man get into a fight or an altercation with a man that they thought to be the attacker only minutes before the stabbing started. And they thought that this person wounded the slasher during the confrontation. So the police turned to the media, urging this man to come forward, hoping that he may be able to offer any information about who this guy with this knife was. So the guy they were looking for was described as black. He was wearing a suit and he was 200 pounds. He had been seen with a woman in a double parked brown 1974 Cadillac uh, opposite First Avenue. And the police said, we don't feel he was the perpetrator, but rather a possible witness. This is what they said in the media reports. So then two days later, that man did come forward and he would only identify himself publicly as Louis M. And he said that he had been approached by the slasher as he and his pregnant wife and his mother-in-law were getting into their parked car, which is just terrifying. Seriously. That's like your entire, everybody you love. I know. Oh my God. I can't imagine. He said that the assailant ran towards him as he chanted, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you, which I guess is out of all of the witnesses is the only person that said he said anything, right? Yes. But interestingly to Billy's theory, this was first. He was the first person to encounter. So I think he was putting his little toe in the water to decide how he was going to go about these 
these attacks because he stopped talking to people after this and he had only hit this guy with a cane. He didn't hit him with a knife. Right. So it was like an escalation from, you know, the first encounter yeah. to the last. Did we have a timestamp for this? Was this right before? No, because they didn't find out about it until oh, later. later. Oh, they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Lewis was hit super hard in the head with the attacker's wooden cane. And as his adrenaline kicked in, he grabbed a tire iron from his car, pounded the attacker in the head three or four times. His blows drew a bunch of blood from the slasher's face, and he said that he probably hurt him pretty badly. I think that's probably pretty accurate. He then fled back to his car on foot to avoid the situation escalating anymore. Obviously, he had his pregnant wife and his mother-in-law in the car, so he probably wanted to get the hell out of there. It's pretty insane, to use a good term for this guy. His first attack, he gets attacked back. Yeah. The guy draws blood, and he decides, all right, I'm not going to use the cane. I'm going to use this knife now, and I'm going after somebody else. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, that person who did that first attack is going to say, you know what? If I really want to stab people today, this is not the day. Let me go yeah. back and figure this out. Well, yeah, Because it really did not work the way that he wanted it to work the first time. Even if his face was bleeding, is there blood in his eye? Like, I would just be very put off of my mission for the night. I'd be like, maybe yeah. another day is my day. But apparently not. So Lewis could recall what the attacker looked like, and he aided in the drafting of the sketch. He probably was, he knew more so than anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Although the other four surviving victims provided details, he got the best look and gave the most accurate descriptions. So when the sketch hit the newspapers and the TV all over the metro tri-state area, more than 200 people from as far away as Staten Island and Nassau County had called in claiming to have seen the suspect. And police added that the suspect may have been injured in the area of the mouth or the rib cage. I have a question about all this kind of stuff. So obviously, like when they put a sketch out and people are like getting tips, how much of them are just like non-helpful? Composites are really that's tricky. Not yeah, they're they really not reliable. For the post they part? do help they, in arrest. They, they, they absolutely they do. Absolutely do help when it's something this big. And if he looks similar to people, they're going to get a lot of stuff that isn't right. Right. You know, just from some of the investigations that I do on Facebook, I will have a picture of somebody that sometimes I'll have a sketch, but a lot of times I'll have video of somebody that has just killed somebody, and they're often very dark and blurry. You get a lot of people writing in saying oh, that looks, you know, tagging their friends saying, oh, it looks like this guy or this guy. But to actually pick up the phone and call up uh, the police, it's going to be helpful. Did they get some cranks? Probably. But But hopefully it's more serious than people just like messing around. Exactly. People would mess around on social media. But like I say, and I I tell people this, it helps the algorithm. If you want to get into what I do, it helps the algorithm with social media. So if somebody mentions a joke or something like that, because they commented on it, it means it's going to be seen by more people, particularly their friends. And then people are going to like the comment. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm okay with that. And then you have people going in saying, why are you people joking around? Somebody's murdered, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons. At least, they're, at least they're talking about it. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, in this case, people were definitely talking about it. And detectives swarmed the city hunting for this bearded slasher. And they had no immediate clue as to the identity of this person. And witnesses said he was wearing a white ski cap and a blue ski coat. And there was conflicting witness testimony on what he was actually wearing. People had said he was wearing other things, how big he was seemed to vary depending on who saw him and when and how old he looked. And this complicated the investigation so much so more. So nothing was Nothing cohesive. was for sure. And you think about, you know, dark streets of New York City, it's not surprising. The guy's wearing a hat. The guy's big. Oh, yeah. You know, from depending on how tall you are, you could totally misjudge how tall someone is. You know, well, I again, and the fact that he just kind of up and leaves after he's attacking these people, it'd be a lot easier to find somebody if you see some maniac running down the street. You'd be like, oh, okay, he looks like this. And like you're going to really take note, but it's like when he just blends in with the background and we knacks all calmly and just walks away like he did nothing. Yeah. And it, if there's people around, it's like who, yeah, who even did it? He drew way less attention to himself that way. Right. And, you know, in the preliminary stages of the investigation, the police focused their efforts on looking into patients of the surrounding Bellevue Mental Hospital. There were other mental hospitals around also, and they were wondering if perhaps a recently released psychiatric patient could be to blame for these chilling attacks. And Billy talked a little bit about crime rates spiking in, you know, the 1980s. And this is also 
also around the same time as the crack epidemic, which, you know, totally took over New York City in 1980s and the early 1990s. And as the crack epidemic hit the city, this caused psychiatric facilities to experience a large influx of patients because crack exacerbates psychiatric symptoms, you know, Mm -hmm. schizophrenia, all sorts of things like that. So it's this huge problem that we're facing. We're not enough beds, more people in need, people being released early. And, you know, it was wise of detectives to focus on mental hospitals. It's just the perfect storm for something like that to happen. Yeah. I mean, mean, crack was a little bit later than this. Crack was like 84, 85. There might have been little pockets. I mean, who knows who actually invented the first crack. Of course. And but the the fact is that that did become a perfect storm. Um, And one of the reasons why there were so many people that were willing to do it is because nobody had any money and nobody was stopping the dealers from doing it. So you had all of this stuff going on. 1,800 homicides in 1980, which is three times the amount that we saw last year. There were a lot of people being killed and there just was not enough police officers to stop it. Right. Mm -hmm. And not only police officers, just the whole uh, idea of the broken window syndrome where, you know, you have a broken window, you don't fix it. And everybody thinks, well, you know what, I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing and I'll keep uh, being bad to my community. That was what was going on. You see Mm -hmm. everything with graffiti everywhere. And um, he's such a joke now. But Giuliani is really the one that helped fix this city by fixing all these problems. And he would have gone down as a pretty damn good mayor. But um, he's been overshadowed by all this nonsense that's going on right now. And he's really good friends with a priest who is implicated in molestation. But that's for another another (laughs) podcast. That's a later episode. (laughs) So you have every police officer in New York City. They're carrying around the sketch of the suspect. They've obviously they've showed the sketch to everybody in the hospital. Uh, all, all the orderlies, all the doctors, thinking that it probably isn't a uh, coincidence that this guy was around Bellevue when he attacked. But they didn't get anything. You know, a lot of cops on the case claim to have arrested somebody who who resembled the guy from the sketch. Some of those with cases dating back five or six years, they went through mug shots, um, hoping that the slasher had a criminal record. And you know, the greatest fear obviously was that this guy was going to strike again. The police and those who were consulting them on all on, on this guy's possible mental state, they also feared that this guy might not even remember what he did. Oh. Like he just went and did it and doesn't even remember it. That's terrifying. So in the days that followed the slasher attacks, about 20 men had been picked up and questioned by the detectives. And finally, one man stuck out to them. And it seemed like this is the break. This is it. This is what everybody's been waiting for. And everybody felt like, all right, we're going to breathe a little bit easier in the city. Right. And the guy they picked up for these attacks was a man named Leroy McBride. And he was essentially targeted or pinpointed or fingered, whatever you want to say, after a witness saw his picture, saw his mugshot in a pile of mugshots at the police station and recognized him as the slasher. After that, the police received an anonymous letter where someone else also implicated Leroy in this slasher attack. And he really did resemble the slasher. I saw a picture of him and I saw a picture of the sketch. And truly, there was a resemblance. And he also had a criminal record. He had been jailed in 1967 for attempted rape, convicted for rape in 1968. 1973, he was arrested for weapon possession and criminal mischief. 1975, arrested for felonious assault, which I'll have to look at the definition of that from 1975, because I'm sure it's something different now. What's interesting in what was kind of like one of the most damning pieces of evidence against Leroy is that he had been in a car accident in 1971 and he wore leg braces And when they entered, when the police entered Leroy's apartment, he had a number of canes. So he was a large strapping guy, which meant that he had the physical capacity to uh, perpetrate an assault. But he also had this injury, which wasn't a handicap. He was still able-bodied, but he was still required to either use leg braces or cane. So this seemed to be really damning because, as you know, the assailant in the initial attack and the Bellevue slasher attacks carried a cane. You know, with his criminal background and all of that, he was the target in this investigation, and they really thought they had their guy. And Leroy was already on their radar. 
when they got a call that he was banging on the windows and doors of an apartment building. And apparently he was looking for his ex-wife, a woman named Alexis Davis. She's probably a bad bitch because Alexis is the best name ever. Anyways... After he was found beating on the doors of the apartment building, of Alexis's apartment building, he was taken in for a parole violation because he was on parole for all these previous crimes, and he was unable to raise the $1,500 for bail. So he ended up being remanded to the Brooklyn House of Detention. So it was also revealed after he was in custody that McBride was a Vietnam War veteran. Surely we're dealing with some PTSD stuff. Billy, you said that this time was prior to the real climax of the crack cocaine epidemic so i mean i don't know what kind of drugs he could have been on i don't know if ptsd played a role in this i really don't know about this guy but he had nine arrests under his belt and he was interrogated for 11 hours about these crimes and they couldn't get this guy to crack if this was their guy he was not breaking and not only that they put him in a lineup and they brought Dr. Wolf down. And here is Dr. Wolf's account of attending one of these lineups post-surgery. I get this call from the 19th precinct. And they said, hey, Doc, we got him. We need you to come down for a lineup. I said, guys, I said, are you kidding? I said, I can, I, I can barely walk. We'll come and get you. Anything we have to do, we'll... Anyway, I said, okay. And they took me in an unmarked car down to down into the basement, and I'm waiting for the elevator to go up to where the lineup was going to be. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I'm not feeling well. And the elevator's not working. I said, oh, I, you know, I got to walk up. I said, look, I'm, I'm not good. Anyway, I walked up the steps. And then I, they have this lineup. Was it traumatizing to see a bunch of guys who look like the slasher? No, I didn't think about that. In all honesty, I thought, I mean, I was just intent on identifying the right person so they could put this guy away. I mean, that was my whole objective. Now, to me, it was a police lineup. You know, you see it on TV because that was the closest I've ever been to a police lineup. And, uh, you know, that was that was that. So just left it at that. Man, and he, you know, he saw a guy and he identified him as the guy. He's like, I'm sure that's him. It wasn't him. God. He's like, I thought and I, he said to me, you know, I really thought I could identify him. I'm like, well, it wasn't him. So, yeah, <laughs> maybe you could if the real guy was standing in front of you. Yeah. They brought all the other witnesses and victims down who were well enough to go see him. And nobody ID'd this guy. They really wanted him to be their guy. But he wasn't. No one identified him as a slasher. And they had no evidence. And he was eventually cleared. <sighs> I know. Because then, you know, they continued the investigation. They continued to look. But how many resources do you give a case until it's kind of like, well, And they just had no, no other breaks in the case? Well, I'm sure they had a million Leroy McBrides. You know, right. where, like, this guy is kind of a drifter type. Looks kind of like the sketch. But if no one IDs them and you don't have any other evidence, yeah. 1980, they had very little surveillance footage. Like, how do you pinpoint this guy? Right. The one thing, too, is that one of this is just interesting that I read in one of the articles where the police's biggest fear was that this guy was going to hit again. Right. They also yeah. said if he doesn't hit again, we're probably not going to catch him. And he obviously never hit again. Well, it's quite possible that he actually did hit again and we just don't know it. But either way, whether he hit again or not, no one has had to pay for the Bellevue slasher crimes. And I want you guys to all think about that right now. This man took a woman's life and severely impacted the lives of four other individuals for years to come. Injuries they never recovered from, PTSD that could have filtered into their lives in ways that are irreparable. The butterfly effect, massive in this sort of thing. Not to mention, second largest manhunt in, in Manhattan at this point. 50 detectives on this case. And what I think people don't realize is that crimes like this 
are significant for a number of reasons, not only because of the impact they have on other people's lives. These act as generator crimes, creating a blueprint for criminals to copycat in the future. And in this time frame, there were a number of slashings around this time. There was a Skid Row slasher, which was in New York, not the L.A. Skid Row. But these guys created the archetype that would be Manhattan slashings. And for anyone who's listening to a podcast, you're obviously millennial age or in the technological age, what have you. We know that slashings became huge in you know, the 2010, 2015, 2016 is when they hit their peak. So the significance of this Bellevue slasher is way greater and larger than any of us realize. And one of my favorite things to do is pull this into modern times and let's listen to some headlines of slashings just from the last two years alone what we're still dealing with and you know all of this started back in 1980 when these slashings first started to rear their ugly heads and they were popping up on law enforcement radar a rash of random slashings in New York City has residents there on edge. Three of those attacks occurred in the subway system just this week. Police released photos of a man on board a number three train in Brooklyn shortly before he allegedly struck a 29-year-old woman in the hand with a machete. Around the same time, a 32-year-old man was slashed across the face while waiting for a train in Harlem. And on Monday, a 71-year-old grandmother was randomly slashed in the face on a train in Lower Manhattan. There have been over a dozen random slashings here in the city in just the last few months. A spate of random knife slashings passes by across New York City is putting fear into residents. Around a dozen unprovoked knife attacks have been reported across New York since December, including three this week on subway trains. Well, all were committed by strangers. The rash of scary slashings in the city seems unstoppable, and now even the police are being attacked. The rash of slashing continues here in New York City with another three attacks on Tuesday. Workers are growing more unnerved after a series of random attacks and slashings across the city, especially since the suspects are still on the loose. And just blocks away this afternoon, another slashing, this time in Soho at Lafayette and Prince Street. Then on the Upper West Side, a third attack just after 5 o'clock. Now with three separate attacks in less than 24 hours, New Yorkers wonder if they could be next. A woman slashed in the face while just walking down the street. It could happen to anybody, but it's certainly something nobody expects. I mean, it's 8 o'clock, you're walking down the street, a guy just like slices you. It's crazy. The woman walking down 125th Street, when a man passes her, appears to take a razor out of his mouth, turns around and slashes her face. Are these isolated incidents or copycat crimes driven by a trend? That is the big question. And again, the person who committed this latest slashing here in front of this skate store is still on the loose. There are no known gang ties in all of these cases. A different suspect and victim every time. The only common thread is the manner in which the victims have been attacked. Let's go over what we just heard. We're going to use 2016 as the baseline here because more recent data isn't available from the FBI. 2017 is still being tallied. 2018 is our reality at the moment. So... In 2016, let's start with February 24th. And at that point, the NYPD had recorded 567 slashing attacks. That's just in the first two months. I can't find data for the rest of the year. And I can't find data for 2017. But that is what we had for the first two months in 2016. So you can only imagine the escalation from there. That's a huge number of attacks. And what's particularly interesting and frustrating at the same time about these attacks is that they're impossible to track in terms of the trends. They're impossible to record and actually gather data for because every police force and every law enforcement agency categorizes these sorts of attacks differently and with their own kind of method. The fact that there has been an influx in these crimes is undeniable, but the reasons behind the spikes are more elusive and remain very unclear. The behavior itself, however, could be contagious. And this copycat phenomenon has emerged in events like suicide, school shootings, and in the past, even airline hijackings. Now, the theory is that these are copycat crimes that inspire perpetrators to recreate offenses that they found out about through media coverage. And the similarity between the frequency of the incidents and the fact that there appears to be such a precipitous uptick in these incidents 
is kind of what leads experts to believe that this is, in fact, what is happening. Now, for a crime to be considered a copycat, it must be based on, like I said before, a generator crime. Someone who perpetrates a copycat crime can lift any element from an original, whether it be motivation, technique, setting escape, or just ethos or pathos behind the crime. And copycat crimes can occur any number of years after the original generator crime takes place. Think of the mass murderers who still use Columbine shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold as inspiration. Side note, that makes me really sick to talk about those guys, but it's it's classic. This happened decades ago, and people are still using that initial generator crime to inspire similar copycat crimes. As repulsive as they are, that is the quintessential generator crime. Of course, the tricky part is proving that any given cluster of crimes really has a copycat component. And the only way to truly know whether a copycat crime took place is to ask a perpetrator. And even then, you have to take them at their word. And generally, criminals are immoral liars. Okay, so that being said, I have good news and I have bad news. Bad news first. So, if the copycat model holds true... Yeah, more media coverage leads to more copycatting, leads to more crimes, leads to more violence, more deaths, more slashings, etc. Super bummer. Bad news. But the silver lining is... You guys are all going to love this. So one macabre feature of fatal knife violence in New York City, which I'm using as the baseline here, it's a cold comfort, but a comfort nonetheless. Research appears to indicate that people who are stabbed have a better chance of surviving than people who are shot. A study of emergency room cases in Philadelphia revealed that one-third of people with gunshot wounds died compared to 7.7% of people who had been stabbed. One study even found that even people who had been stabbed in the heart had a death rate only half as high as people who'd been shot. Okay, so those are the modern-day implications of what crimes like Bellevue Slasher have on modern times. And this is one of the biggest crimes of the time in terms of Manhattan random slasher stabbing attacks, etc. Let's circle back to Bellevue. I mean, we're, we're solving crimes like this all the time now. Crimes from even earlier. So can this crime be solved? What were the chances of them solving it even back then? Everybody knows that stranger crimes are much harder to solve than crimes perpetrated by someone who knows the other individual. So let's talk a little bit about the likelihood of them solving it then and if it's possible to be solved now. You know, the, the my one question from reading all of this is the tire iron that the first guy mm-hmm. that he attacked, where is that tire iron? If that tire iron is there, if he did bloody him, if that tire iron has the guy's DNA on yeah. it, then you might be able to do a search for some familial DNA. Odds are this guy is in a potter's grave someplace. Well, interesting about the tire iron and Lewis M., who is that witness who fought back. One of the police were quoted in the media saying it would have been really helpful if he'd come forward right away in identifying him and finding him within close proximity. How long was he again? A couple weeks. Yeah, a couple weeks. As we know, in a number of cases, they've kept evidence um, with DNA material and been able to test it decades later. They were doing this in the 70s. This is still unsolved, so it's a lot harder to get your hands on those police documents and get information. Right. But that's something I'm working on for maybe a follow-up episode. Who knows? But yeah. if I get more info, anything's possible. Yeah, the tire iron. Now listen, if it took that long for him to come forward, he oh probably, if there was blood on the tire oh iron, God. he probably... Listen, you don't normally clean a tire iron. It's just something that by its very nature is stays is, dirty. Stays dirty. Mm-hmm. Whether this guy was meticulous in his stuff and decided to clean the tire and then put it back in his trunk. Who knows? But I mean, I think the takeaway from this episode is there's never evidence or any sort of a witness description or anything that's too small. Because mm-hmm. if he could have helped solve that case, if he came forward earlier. Yep. Absolutely. What are your guys' theories on who this guy was and why he did this? I just, I feel like it's just a combination. It, like we were talking about, it's just the perfect storm of everything that was kind of going on in that city to kind of create probably this little bit of a maniac. Mm-hmm. Silent maniac. Silent maniac. The biggest thing that, you know, he had mental issues. The biggest thing that shows me that he had mental issues, other than the fact that he just stabbed five people, is other the, than fact, that little fact. the fact that he attacked the first person. The first person fought back and he was more worse for wear and he kept going. Mm-hmm. And that shows somebody that just is hell bent on just doing what he 
thought he was what well, he wanted to do that day. Right, and that might have somehow fired him up even more, which mm-hmm. is absolutely terrifying. Well, we thank Dr. Wolf so much for sharing this. I was like, I'm sorry to disrupt your amazing Menorca paradise to relive, I'm sure, his fondest memory. Yeah. But he was... Uh, you know what? He deserves, he deserves that yacht that he, he lives really on. does. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, remember to go rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. And if you guys have a first degree story of your own, please go to our website, the first degree podcast.com. There's a submission page or you can email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. And remember to keep your friends close, but not that close. Sources for this episode include the New York Daily News.